Welcome to Politics as Unusual. I'm Michael Sheehan, the creator and the host. In short, you can blame me. Now, Politics as Unusual is where we try to take a different and hopefully entertaining break from the 24-7 endless news cycle that can sometimes leave us gasping for air. So you can think of it as politics, policy, and people through Alice's Looking Glass, like today's episode. What can political candidates learn from professional wrestlers? And it's brought to you by FedEx. If I had to describe them in two words, affordable and fast. Now, I have to confess, as a young boy, I was fascinated by professional wrestling. Back in the day when it still stuck to the story that it was for real. From the outlandish villains to the heroic good guys with all the grunts and the groans and the body slams. Now, my favorite was Bruno San Martino. He was my second choice for my father, but my dad did come in first. Now, I was and still am astonished at how these guys can captivate and mesmerize an audience. But I also remembered from that same time period, President John Kennedy, and how he could mesmerize a crowd, of course, for a completely different reason. But the more I've thought about it, there's a lot a political candidate can learn from a professional wrestler. And with all the first-time candidates we have running in this cycle, now's exactly the time to offer up some instruction, free of charge and free from bodily injury. Now, I can't think of anyone better suited to join us for this than my friend Barry Blaustein. Barry had a stint in the writer's room for Saturday Night Live. He then joined up with cast member Eddie Murphy and wrote the scripts for Coming to America and The Nutty Professor. But what gives him special creds to discuss our topic today is his brilliant documentary, Beyond the Mat. I guess you can see why I call this politics as unusual and why we're joined today by my friend Barry Blaustein. You know, more and more you hear people talk about politics being a blood sport. Well, you know, the truly blood sport, as far as I'm concerned, is professional wrestling, which I fell in love with as a kid. Wrestling, geez, has been called the sport of kings. It's been called blue-collar ballet. Politics has been called all of that and a little more. But the more I've been thinking about it, and with all the work I do in politics, the more similarities I've been seeing between the two. Just think about it. There are winners and losers. Both need people who have really big personalities. They got to be able to work a crowd. And you need conflict. A lot, a lot of conflict. Now, you know, because we've been friends for a while, I've worked with lots of candidates on every level of government here, overseas. Most politicians don't come to this skill in terms of being a good campaigner. Naturally, they have a lot to learn. And coming up in the election, we're going to have a whole lot of first-time candidates who have never run before. So what I wanted to yak with you about is what can politicians learn from wrestlers? Because they know how to work a crowd. They know how to get stuff across. So that's what I want to take a look at today. And I didn't think there could be any better person for me to talk to than you. Why? SNL, you wrote for? You're blushing with modesty. There was the Eddie Murphy comedies that you wrote. But the overlooked thing is that really great documentary you did about professional wrestling, which amazingly, I found out not till I saw it for the second time, came from Imagine and the Ron Howard studio. How'd that all come about? Thank you for the compliments. It came about because um, we wrote, my partner and I, David Sheffield, wrote Nutty Professor 1. And they want us to write Nutty Professor 2, which I had, um, I said, artistically, there's no reason for me to do it. 
financially, I understand why you want to do it. <laughs> and they showed me why financially I might want to do it. And I made a deal with them. I will write it, but they had to finance this documentary. Ah, twofer. 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 And, and it totally left me alone. I, you know, I think they forgot about it. They said, how much will it cost? And I said, half a million dollars I can do it for. And it, you followed it, a bunch of professional wrestlers yeah, for five two, years. Five years. Yeah. Well, from the time I got the money to getting inside the wrestling world, and I traveled with the wrestlers for about a year and a half before I started filming because I wanted them to feel very comfortable around me. And at that time, they didn't let outsiders in so um, to gain their trust. And then it's been about a, a year. I mean, not every day. I mean, yeah. month here, a month there. You know, when I started thinking about politics colliding with wrestling— I went back and there was a famous, at least from my point of view, hearing that was done in New York State. This was back when they still tried to put out the idea that wrestling was not rigged, wrestling right. was real. And there was an accident that was reported in the New York Daily News that a young kid got carried away watching wrestling, came into the kitchen, slapped the sleeper hold on his mother who was preparing stir fry, knocked it over, caused a fire in the kitchen. And so, of course, some state senator thought, what a great topic for a hearing, fake wrestling and the influence it has on our young kids. So they had a hearing, started off great way. They had a psychiatrist who looked at film and came up with a ratio that there were more breaking of the rules to legal techniques by a three to one ratio. Just about the same thing we have in politics right now, negative to positive. But my favorite was their star witness that they thought they were going to skewer. Sheikh Ali Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, who was the manager, I think, for the Iron Sheik. Real name, Al Greco from Stuyvesant Town. And <laughs> they tried to give it to the guy. And I think my highlight they reported in the New York Times was the one of the state senators got just so frustrated with him. He said, won't you admit that the outcome of these matches is preordained? And the sheik replied, no more than this hearing. And that's when I sort of thought, you know, there's a lot these two things had in common. Now, you covered wrestling when it sort of made that transition from it's real to know it's entertainment is choreographed. Right. What happened is once they started to go that way, it became much more dangerous. You know, guys told me that when we said everything was real, 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 they were much more careful once they said it was fake or it's predetermined. It's not fake because they are doing these stunts and they are getting hit over the head with real chairs and they take tremendous risks with their bodies. People are going, well, it's all fake, so it's not really real. Believe me, a lot of it is real. I mean, the ring is padded and it's choreographed. But when uh, you watch a movie to do a stunt, they'll prepare hours to do a stunt. Hmm. And these guys are doing 30, 40 stunts within five minutes. Just like we prepare weeks for a political uh, debate. Right. Or a convention. You got to meet Vince McMahon. Yes. Spent a lot that? of time with him. What kind of pleasure was that? I liked Vince. I liked Vince. But what happened with Vince is, and when I think it happens in politics too, you project a certain character, and it happens with a lot of wrestlers, that eventually you become that character. Mm -hmm. You pretend to be something long enough. You know, Kurt Vonnegut wrote, we are what we pretend to be, so we should be careful what we pretend to be. Say the same thing in politics. You see some people who started out 10, 12 years ago, they got a message, they have an approach to it, and some of it may not be at the top of the list of what they really want to do legislatively, but... 
the more they do the other stuff or the more they do what the speaker asked them to do or the majority leader asked them to do, and suddenly it is what they believe. It kind right. of melts. I mean, Vince is a complicated guy. First, he's brilliant. Yeah. He's a brilliant showman. Uh-huh. And there's part of him that is very soft spot for wrestlers. I but yet he doesn't to. often health benefits. They, they're not unionized. Right. They don't uh, receive residuals. They're on TV every week, yet they're not a member of AFTRA. Just like senators and, and members right. of Congress, huh? Right. You know, one of the other early signs I got about this overlap between the two was actually the first national debate I was involved in was the Lloyd Benson Dan Quayle debate in 1988. And it was in, I remember the date. Exactly. It was October the 4th, 1988. And I just out of curiosity went back and checked the papers. Two days before, in exactly the same auditorium, was a WWF card. So professional wrestling preceded the debate. And there probably was a sign. Uh, I checked the record. And in one of the feature matches, Terry Taylor defeated Sam Houston by submission when he applied the infamous Scorpion death lock. Right. I think that's what we use with Benson on quail. Um, <laughs> if, I think I, 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 there was a submission also. Well, Terry Taylor saved my life when I was doing the documentary. How's that? I was originally going to do WCW rather than w- Which was the Atlanta uh, one. Yes, the one owned by Ted Turner. Because I wasn't getting any luck in getting inroads to WWF, mm-hmm. now, now WWE. And I went down to Atlanta... And I was supposed to meet Eric Bischoff, the promoter. Mm-hmm. And they used to do TV tapes at the arena stage. And there was suddenly one wrestler started finding another wrestler. I heard the screaming off out of the room. And another wrestler went to go after him. And there's a big guy named Vader who was a big wrestler. Yeah. and But who was known as a locker room bully. And another wrestler was beating him up for him bullying someone else. So we're fighting. Broke, broke out, broke broke out, out of the right, fight. Right, And then I thought, well, this is all being done for my uh, amusement and all that stuff. And I was in a small room and they're still fighting. And Terry Taylor grabbed me and said, I'm getting you out of here. So this is real. Yeah, it's, it was real. Yeah, it's funny. You know, that point happens in campaigns, too. And I think people have n- never run and are going to run. They all start the same way. Right. They're so sweet. <laughs> it's always, I want to keep this positive. Right. You know, where this is a noble officer running for, and I want to stay respectful, and I want to keep it positive. Uh, let's fast forward eight months. That son of a where yeah. I want to run more negative. How dare he? And it goes on, and, and you just see it every single right. time. I think, you know, wrestlers, for wrestlers to be successful, they have a message. Mm-hmm. And they have passion and pageantry and it's not as important what you say is a feeling that you project and arouse in people hmm. same thing with politicians yeah you know let's do a little word association name association okay. i was thinking like of all the people i worked with who worked the crowd the best probably barack obama when it was at one of the looser events who's the best you ever saw at work in a crowd in the ring or outside the ring jake roberts yeah. Jake it's, Roberts, and he, he was very specific. He told me you got to, when you work a crowd, you don't work the whole crowd. You look at one person and you signal them out. Ooh. And you work Ooh. on them. You know, that's funny. That was a delivery technique Bill Clinton used. 
If you go back and look at most speakers in front of a crowd, they scan the audience with their eye contact, as you're supposed to do. But most just end up scanning. Matter of fact, I once did an informal kind of study. Guys will look at people in the audience for about three, four words at a time. Women, when they're campaigning, they're giving a speech, they'll look at people like nine, ten words at a time. But Clinton would do this thing where he'd pick someone out in the audience and there'd be sentences, if not paragraphs. And that's why if you talk to anybody who's ever met President Clinton, he'll say, oh, my God, when you talk to him, you're the only one in the room. It's like the rest of the world disappears. And some of it comes from just this technique that he worked on that I would watch him do where you just narrowed in on somebody in the audience. You made, that's my, I'm going to win that one over. I'm going to win that over. And then you go to another person. Yeah. And people are worried or excited that they're going to be the next person. You know, that's a big crowd. What about connecting with an individual through TV as opposed to a, a live crowd? Who sort of could really work the screen? Mick Foley's excellent at it. Now, Nick Foley had like five names when he wrestled. Yeah, right. Multiple personality or, or just... No, just different characters. He was originally started... Mick Foley is his God-given name. Yeah. Then he became... A, his first character was named Cactus Jack, uh-huh. who was a crazed guy, Charles Manson type of guy. But he would do these interviews where he'd use these references, literary references, and you're going, there's something, <laughs> something weird about this. It's a weird conjunction of uh, characters there. Then he went to WWE and he became Mankind... Mm-hmm. Which I remember, I had a meeting with Vince McMahon very early in it, and he talked to me about, he went over the roster with me and wanted to know what I thought of people and who would be a big star. Ooh. And he was not high on Mick. And I remember saying, I think Mick Foley could be a big star. He goes, really? I go, yeah, but you have him in a character where he doesn't talk. Talking is his strength. Huh. You should let him talk. Then he became another character named Dude Love, which is a character he created when he was 16 years old, which was a, <laughs> a hippie, cool guy. Yeah. And he would do Dude Love when he was injured because he could work a lot easier. You know, it's funny. Politicians, once they get a little bit of success, and maybe even just before that, you can start to hear in their speeches or in their cadence or what they want to say, echoes of the politicians that they admired. And you sort of hear like little echoes oh, come yeah. up. You know, it's like, wait a minute, I've heard that before. Uh, that was JFK or that was Jimmy Carter. Or that was Ronald Reagan. And it, it just sort of bubbles out of them. Last one, inciting a crowd into a fury. Obviously, politicians today, uh, President Trump. I've got my idea who you would say, but who would you say could work him into a frenzy? Steve Austin. Incredible. Well, he was the anti-hero. His appeal was he was the guy who stood up to the boss and who doesn't want to bash that boss's head open after a while. Just antagonistic and F you to anyone who disagrees with me. You know, it's my way or no other way. As you all know, and I think as some people are starting to remember, Donald Trump actually got involved in wrestling for a while. I remember that. Sure. What happened? Vince wanted to do WrestleMania. He needed a venue. So he did it twice at the Trump Casino and. It was profitable for both of them. And then, you know, Trump was a celebrity, the celebrity mm-hmm. apprentice. And, you know, he, he was got, a good guy. Get out. Trump was a good guy. Oh, no, but he would get in the ring. I remember I've seen, I think everyone's seen clips of the highlights and he belted a couple of people and whacked them over the head with a chair. Yeah, but kind of like, you know, I wouldn't put him in a fight, even against Joe Biden. I'd 
bet on Biden. Oh, is it, yeah. <laughs> but, Biden, uh, Biden would beat the spread easily. Yeah. He was very good as an antagonist towards Vince McMahon. Really? Yeah. Because he was the nice millionaire. He was the millionaire that cared about people. It's the same bullshit he did when he <laughs> ran for president, except people believed it. So that was his out-of-town tryout. Yeah, his out-of-town tryout. You know, they're very close. The biggest donor to Trump's campaign, private donor, was Vince McMahon. Today's episode of Politics as Unusual, heck, all the episodes of Politics as Unusual, are brought to you by FedEx. Forty-five years ago, there was this little startup company, a venture capital effort. It had 14 Falcon jets, and that first night it put 186 packages on board and delivered them where they were supposed to go to the right people the following day. Well, that company has grown a little. FedEx now covers more than 220 countries and territories. In essence, they're covering 92% of the world's GDP in one to two business days. Every day they handle 14 million daily shipments. They have to use 670 aircraft. They utilize 5,000 hubs and facilities, as well as 180,000 motorized vehicles to get your stuff where you want it to be on time. In essence, they have become the largest transportation system on the planet taking care of your stuff. So when it comes to your stuff, your packages, your deliveries, your important papers, you want a company that's got to be big enough, reliable enough, fast and affordable enough for your stuff. That would be FedEx. And besides, they have great taste. They're sponsoring our show, right? And they have a sense of humor. FedEx. I use them. Let me start to delve into more what politicians can learn from wrestlers. One of the things people really shy about at the beginning is sort of work in the crowd before they actually go up to give the speech. How do you enter? How do you exit? I think from the moment you enter, you have to have confidence and determination and a thought process that I'm a winner and I'm going to win this thing. Even if you don't feel that way, you have to project someone. Everybody wants to support someone who's strong. Everybody wants a winner. Yeah, everybody wants a winner. If you go up being scared and timid and unsure of yourself, it shows. And people don't want that. That's all Trump did. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't care the truth doesn't matter. You know, he's being true to who he is. The most successful characters are just an extension of their personalities. And he tells people what they want to hear, huh? even if it's not true. Well, that sort of goes into when people start to give speeches. A lot of times when I work with a new candidate, it's almost a stream of consciousness. And you want to say, hey, we got to put a little bit of structure into this. Yeah. You got to put a little bit of structure into a match. Yeah, you too. You do. I mean, with Trump, it's sort of like when you're watching wrestling, you're going, this is fake, this is fake, this is fake, this is fake. This might be real. <laughs> right? And that's what keeps wrestling alive. When you watch Trump, you're going, this is bullshit, this is bullshit, this is bullshit. Maybe this is true. You know, going back to that entry, when candidates go up to the lectern or just to the front of the room, I just think people start to read them like a dog starts to react to a dog they see coming in the other direction. And the thing that I always notice about wrestlers is sometimes their approach to the ring took longer than the match itself. When you go to a wrestling match, all people cheer for are the entrance and the exit and the end of the match. It, the crowd is not silent. 
but they're not as involved during the match as they are during the end. It's the pageantry. It's yeah. the spectacle of it. It's the expectation of what's going to happen. Yeah. It's always for candidates. I always tell them the first two, three minutes of their stump speech, be it big or small, is where you sort of have to get the audience to like you or yeah. at least identify with you. It's almost like in musical theater, they call it the want song. That right. like either the first or second song has got to be something that I makes want. you fall in love with that character. Yeah. And something in the beginning of a speech, particularly if it's a candidate, you're just starting to get to know there's got to be something in it. You know, Clinton would have it when he talked the stories about his boyhood, Obama about, you know, his father was from Kenya and his mother was from that magical land, Kansas. Right. You know, they would just have that moment where you went, ah. Right. I, to me, you know, it's like focusing on what you're going to do rather than what your opponent will do. What does that mean? Don't talk about, oh, this person's going to do this or this person's going to do this. Focus about what you're going to do. Imagine the other person wasn't in the room. That gets into a skill that uh, I guess Vince has to put and any of the old wrestling promoters, Ted Turner included, was their interview skills. I mean, if you can't have a mini drama... And sometimes I watch even the, the people that I've worked with in the past on Meet the Press or Face the Nation, and it's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Blah. I mean, there are, there are people who have that ability. Bernie Sanders has that ability. Yeah. He's very passionate and he's true to himself, even if it turns people off. Yeah. Certain people off. He's true to himself. Yeah. Trump is true to himself. Hillary suffered from, in my opinion, I don't think Trump won. I think Hillary lost the election. Yeah. But Hillary suffered from trying to be something to everyone. At some point, you just got to run with what you really care about to right. some degree. I mean, obviously, there are other issues that are not important to you, but are important to the country, important right. to the state, important to the city. You got to do that stuff. But at some point, you got to let that pilot flame just go loose. You got to be loose. You got to act like this is what I believe in. And if you don't like it, that's okay. This is what I believe in. And yeah. that's something the Republicans have mastered. Yeah. Well, you know, there's an old saying in the Democratic Party, which is we always nominate the smartest kid in the class and they always nominate the most popular kid in the class. Right. Um, <laughs> when will we learn? Right. The other thing that they have in wrestling that we kind of have in politics is sort of the evil manager or the evil, you know, head of the company. Right. And, and I was thinking, you know, if I played word association, Vince McMahon, Carl Rove, Fred Blassie, my one of my favorites of all time, <laughs> Steve Bannon, you know, <laughs> these guys, you know, separated at birth. It's the same thing. Right. It's the same thing. And the way they would get worked up. And they eventually become those people. Yeah. You know, it's funny. They come off stage after a big speech or after a big debate. And just like someone who does Hamlet, it takes them a half hour, an hour to sort of cool down yeah. or, or just to remember, you know, I remember I coached uh, or helped coach John Kerry when he ran for president in 2004, and we did really well in that first debate, I must admit. And he walked off the stage and I saw him backstage and I said, how do you feel? What do you think? He said, I can't remember <laughs> anything I did. You tell me, how did I do? Because you just do get wrapped into it. It, right. it. it becomes one. And if people aren't willing to do that, if you're not ready to do this seven days a week, 24 hours a day, if you're not ready to give the same speech and sort of feel the same stuff, you gotta sell it. it's like, bro, you know, forget eight performances a week. It's eight performances a day. Eight, eight a day. And 
That was one of the things that Bill Clinton was always able to do. He would take the same basic message, but he would infuse it with, I just met somebody last night, or I just visited. And he would just constantly infuse it. It's the same message, same structure, but constantly put sort of new air in the tires every single day. In watching your, your film again, there's this scene where Jake the Snake Roberts almost has this, I don't know, is an intervention or whatever with his daughter. Right. I mean, it is a father-daughter to the 50th degree. It is real. But they know there's a camera. I mean, the camera's, what, three feet for them, six feet for them? And they have this ability to sort of, the camera's just a wall. It's just a light fixture. Well, his daughter said to me, he could do it on camera. He can't do it without a camera. She says, I would have liked him come to me without a camera. So it changed him? It's weird. Did you see the film Wiener about Anthony Wiener? Yes. I love that film. Uh, first of all, I know Huma. If you're out there, Huma, hi. <laughs> I like you. But why, but, didn't you, but why didn't you say, shut the cameras off? Yeah. When that scene outside the kitchen where sort of it all starts to come out, there is a camera six feet from and. They had this ability, and you know, I love the seen... highlight of the documentary is when the when the filmmaker spoke for the first time, and they said, "Why are you letting us film this?" Yeah. And I was like, "Yeah, that's the question you have to ask. Why didn't you say stop it?" Yeah, I think because to a degree they get used to it, or it becomes part of the atmosphere. Right. But you know, it's weird because it's happened. That's to me a, a good bit. documentarian. You get so close. You know, a, a couple of times for the presidential campaigns I was involved in, they would have a camera crew there sort of filming the real deal. And even every once in a while, I sort of got caught up. You just sort of forget they're there. It's like, you know, one of the attendants came in to change the water or something. Oh, what's that funny thing? And you're, oh, it's a camera. Oh, God, I forgot. But it does happen. It just sort of blends into this smoothie, with right. this weird smoothie of real life. I and would never let stuff. anyone follow me with a camera around. It's never. And they do. Because you can make anyone, you can make anyone look. When I was doing the documentary, you can make anyone look good or you can make anyone look bad. And the ethic that I held to in the editing room was, how did I feel at that moment? Not what makes the best film, but how did I really feel at that moment when it was happening? And try to get that across in the film. Yeah. But that idea, how could you walk into it? I see some people, especially who used to go on Jon Stewart, like when Jim Cramer, went on John Stewart and got crucified. Because he's it's, he thinks I can conquer it. I can it was like a wrestling match. It was sort of like I'll show him and he got creamed. Yeah. And you he know, and he do it a hundred times again. I gotta confess some, something to you. This is a true story. Several years ago, maybe ten years ago, my office got a call from the Daily Show and they said Samantha B is going to do a feature or is going to do a story on media training, and you're known as one of the go-to guys. And so my office is thrilled. They go, oh, he's a big Daily Show fan. He'd love to do it. So I came back. My <laughs> office tells me. So I called back, and I spoke to the producer. And I just said, I just want you to know I am a 100% Daily Show fan. I adore Samantha B. And under no damn circumstances am I letting you in my front door. Good for you. And the guy laughed and said, you're very wise. (laughs) Very, very, very wise. You know, you talked before about realness, authenticity. You talked about Bernie Sanders. In a sense, central casting would not have picked him. No. No, he's in his late 70s. Yeah. 
He's a Jew. Yeah. He looks like someone's cranky uncle. Yeah, he always looks like the guy next door that if your ball went in his backyard, he wouldn't return it right. to you. Yeah. Yeah. But he connected, especially with younger voters. And there is that authenticity idea. And there's a wrestler that you were talking to me about a couple of weeks ago when we were yakking, Daniel Bryant. Right. And he does not exactly fit the ultimate warrior, uh, macho man, Randy Savage. He doesn't fit that stuff at all. He's short. He's a vegetarian. (laughs) He's not intimidating. He's an incredible wrestler. He was not very good on the microphone Mm -hmm. when it first started. Yet he projects, I'm the underdog. I am you. I am the fan. That was part of Mick Foley's appeal when he started appearing just as Mick Foley. He says, he's the fan. He's the fan as a wrestler. You know, I was thinking that old quote has been attributed to like 50 people. Sam Goldwyn is the one I keep hearing is, the key to being good is sincerity. And once you can fake that, you got it made. But I think more and more, especially young voters and young people, they sniff it. You know, it's like a dog sniffing at the hydrant. Look at what happened with Parkland. Yeah. The second day when they were coming out, those kids were going, this is bullshit. I don't want your sympathy. I don't want your prayers. I want you to do something about this. I was at the event. I was actually in about the 10th row up front. Wow. Mainly because my son snuck me in. But what I found fascinating and real is each of those kids, when they came up to the podium, first of all, they came up with like either pieces of paper in their hand. One or two had like a, a binder from school or one of those old tablets that you could see and you could sort of see them holding the paper in their hand just so, you know, they didn't forget what they wanted to say. The paper is flapping in the breeze, you know, stuff that you would never, mostly not have a professional Paul do. And my favorite was the young woman who got so wrapped up, so nervous, hurled. And by the way, I had a side view. She did hurl. Uh, And you loved her. You just loved her. They were all very real and they were all didn't sound like politicians. They yeah. sounded like 17 and four, four, young, so younger, yeah. 14 year olds. Yeah. And they used sometimes the logic of a 14 year olds and the language of it. They were very sincere and passionate. Yeah. Much more passionate than when you hear any other politician talk on either side talk about gun control. Yeah. Rhetoric has changed. Go back to 1960 and go back to what works today, and it's we're in a different world. We're in a different land. There's still time and place for some of the more formal stuff, like an inaugural address. I think that still is sort of a celebration of the classic, but those are fewer and far between. Well, my only favorite, George, yeah. the only thing that made me really like George W. Bush was at the uh, Trump inauguration when he supposedly turned to Obama and said, this is some weird shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> that made me go like, okay, bad president, good guy. Good guy. <laughs> good guy. But the secret is many people think, you know, there's all this artifice, and there is a lot of artifice, but underneath it is something real. You know, um, there was an acting teacher that I watched one day, and he said, you've got to believe that your character is the best, most important character in the play. For example... Othello, Iago, you're great. That asshole Othello, you know, he just gets all the attention, but you're... It's about you. It's It's about you, and it should be about you. It's like the guy who's in Streetcar Named Desire who runs a streetcar, and he goes, the play's about a guy who runs a streetcar. (laughs) And there are politicians who have it. There are leaders who have Joe Biden has it. uh, Yeah. Authenticity. Yeah. A sense of... Because he's passionate about it. Sometimes a little too much, but yes. 
But yes. But I don't think people mind that. No. I don't think people mind that. Look, Trump put his foot in his mouth a billion times and people respond. That's Trump being Trump. I don't know. As I think about it, I do have in my heart a deep love from when I was a little kid for professional wrestling. First time my father took me to Madison Square Garden when I was 12 to see Bruno San Martino knock off Dr. Jerry Graham. And of course, politics, not to mention my corporate stuff, took over my adult life. But I just see these parallel lines all the time. Well, you know, like wrestling, I've loved it. I have the same love of wrestling. I've always loved it. And I've always been embarrassed by it. Yeah. To a certain extent. And do you feel that same way about politics and the way the political... I hate to say it, but to an extent, I do, especially now. Right. When, thank goodness, my sons are older, but if they were younger, the way some of this stuff is being played now, how would I explain some of the rhetoric, and not just the president, although I'm glad to criticize him, but others... And that's what my sons or my daughters are supposed to sort of, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Matter of fact, I would say, see that? Don't do that. You know, I used to say, see that? Do that. Be like that. And I, now, I and teach now at know. the university and uh, I teach screenwriting. And my students are asking me always, is this the worst it's ever been? And I have to say, honestly, it is the worst it's ever been. That we've seen, yeah. But if you go back to the 18th century and even mid-19th century, there were cane fights in the House of Representatives. And there were stories of illegitimate children. Well, no, I guess that one is still right. carries on today, does it not? I think it's phases. Hopefully, we'll be added this one. I do believe in that economic law that everything returns to the mean. That I is, everything agree. sort of returns. It's just a matter of... How long is it going to take? You know, Barry, I think the parking meter is running down on it outside, but I did want to get in two last things. Okay. I was struck by the end of your documentary, your closing line. The only thing harder than an opening line is a closing line. And you had this great line that wrestlers, they're just like you and me, except they're really different. <laughs> Where'd that come from? I had to write something at the end, and it was a first draft, and it came out, and uh, you know, I showed it to the editor, and he goes, well, you're going to have to say it perfectly, and I actually did it in one take, too. Some of the other narration took me many takes to get right, because it's exactly how I felt. When I first met wrestlers, the first wrestler I ever met and had a conversation with was Jesse Ventura. Mm -hmm. Politician? Politician. Politician. And when I was making the film, he decided to run. Hmm. And I met with Jesse and we had dinner and he's talking about how he loves the theater and he does this and his kids and blah, 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 blah. And I'm going, he's not that different than me. And I go, well, wait a second. I don't pretend to make my living wrestling on my underwear. Uh -huh. And I thought, what reaction does that have with his family and the effect of his kids? Because the movie's really about fathers and their children. Right. I go, this guy's not that different than me, but he really is. They are different. <laughs> I can say after doing politics for quite a number of years, I could just insert my noun instead of yours. Politicians, they're just like you and me, except they're really different. Yeah. You have to have it to do that, to get out there and run on this stuff, beg for money in order to do ads, hear terrible stuff said about you or about what you've accomplished, and yet you get up and do it again. And underneath any of the you know snide remarks I made today, I really respect the whole lot of them because goodness knows I could never do it. No, I respect a lot of the politicians out there too and a lot of our leaders and people 
Don't get soft on me, man. Just because it's the end of the show, don't get soft (laughs) on me. (laughs) All right. I respect Kamala Harris, but I don't know her yet well enough to lose respect for her yet. All right. We'll see. (laughs) Listen, as we wrap up, there's something that we're doing in the show that I think is real important. The only fitting way to put an end of it. It's kind of like a takeoff on Survivor. I'm going to vote somebody off the media island. That is somebody I never want to see on the air again. I never want to see as a talking head again. If they're on any channel... Matter of fact, don't even let me change the channel. Just keep them off. So my nominee this week is Alan Dershowitz. Any career that begins with Klaus von Bülow and then picks up with O.J. Simpson, thank you. Please keep him off the air. That's mine. How about yours? Rick Santorum. Because they both have a similar quality that they're just smiling all the time to excuse anything. They have that nervous smile where, well, they'll excuse any behavior. And when he said that thing about kids should not be protesting guns, they should be doing something practical like learning learning CPR. CPR. I'm going, how many times does this guy run for president? I don't know. We don't like you. We don't (laughs) need you. No one cares about you. And on that note, thanks, Barry. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics as Unusual. And a big thanks to my guest today, Barry Blaustein. Now, if you want to hear more great interviews like this one, be sure to subscribe and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your downloads. So thanks again to my sponsor, FedEx. If I had to describe them in two words, affordable and fast. And I'll catch you next week when I talk about how to be funny with the legendary creator of Everybody Loves Raymond, Phil Rosenthal. All our lives are improvisations. Improv class actually makes you better at life. It makes you a better conversationalist. It makes you a better listener. You have to listen. So that's key. It's all here on Politics as Unusual.